are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. This month's book club pick is the much-anticipated second novel by Susanna Dickey, Common Decency. Set in an apartment building in Belfast, Common Decency tracks the lives of two women, Siobhan and Lily. Lily, following the death of her mother, is navigating grief and loneliness when she begins an unhealthy fascination with her neighbour, Siobhan. Siobhan, in turn, is consumed with her affair with a married man and too busy with her own issues to notice Lily. When Lily's resentment builds, both women are forced to confront some uncomfortable truths. Susanna Dickey is a poet and novelist. She's the author of two poetry pamphlets, I Had Some Very Slight Concerns and Genuine Human Values. And elsewhere, her poetry has been published in The White Review, Magma and Ambit, amongst others. In 2017, she was the winner of the Verve Poetry Festival competition. And in 2018, she was shortlisted for the White Review Short Story Prize. Her debut novel, Tennis Lessons, was published in July 2020, and her most recent novel, Common Decency, was published in July of this year. And we are so excited to have Susanna with us today. So, Susanna, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Hello. Thank you for having me. I I always feel weird saying that um, because my partner told me this story um, about when he was little once, and he had a friend come round for tea, and at the end of the evening, his friend left. And the friend said to my partner's dad before leaving, thank you so much for having me. And my partner's dad replied, I shouldn't have you. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I always think of every time I say that. How old was he when that happened? I'd be mortified. I would be mortified. (laughs) I'm a kid. I know. It's at the end of this podcast you can both say to me you didn't have you i can just you know fall into a hole and die i'm gonna let me write it in my notes (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh susanna at the start of every interview we like to break the ice a little bit um by asking one of my favorite questions which is what are you currently reading Ooh, okay um okay well uh mm, i actually just started the other day and this is a slightly kind of off-piste thing i actually started the wings of the dove by henry james um which is absolutely nuts um (laughs) i mean i'm only about 60 pages in and and something i've noticed is like a while ago i was on a real um turgenev kick and turgenev is like near impossible to read because he establishes all these characters but all the characters have about nine different possible names and he just splits between the variations on naming for each character to the point where you don't know who is who and actually Henry James is doing exactly the same thing in this novel he will write three paragraphs that you will think are about four separate characters and then you'll realize he has just been talking about the same character (laughs) I mean I personally love being gaslit by authors Um, But um, actually, before before that, I read is a Scandinavian author um, called Vigdis uh, Hojorth. I might be saying her name completely wrong, um, but she wrote this novel called Long Live the Posthorn, oh. um, and it's it's amazing. And actually, I was thinking about it today because obviously there is a postal strike today, and this novel is like 
it's the most incredible unhinged sort of love letter <laughs> written to postal workers. Oh. It's about this um, PR woman who is becoming like very like disillusioned, like inured to like all the pleasure in life. She has this incredibly like unsatisfying relationship. Her job is just like riddled with kind of ennui and desolation. She's just moving from day to day feeling nothing until she gets asked to like take up this cause for the postal workers, which is to block this EU postal directive. And it's an insane novel because so much of it is devoted to talking about the minutiae of a postal directive. <laughs> But through kind of championing these postal workers, she finds like a real zest for life. And it's all about kind of like the importance of like being active in like grassroots, like activism and wow. like community building. And there's also this amazing scene with her partner where he's bought this sex toy and he's like using it on her. And he repeatedly says, does that feel good? Is that nice? And just every time she just says, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> It's bad. No. <laughs> um, until, until they both just go to sleep. <laughs> Stop. Oh, I, I need to yeah. that. Yeah, no, I need that, that too. I use that in my life. <laughs> I love that. I think, like, we've been saying that, like, unhinged novels is just, like, mm. the new... It's like catnip. It is like catnip. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I absolutely think that. You know, because, like, actually around the time of this publication like I've, I've been asked like a couple of times you know like why do you think there's such this kind of zeitgeist moment for like unhinged women and it's like well because like we're like existing in a kind of socio-cultural economic moment that fucking breeds insanity yeah you know? i feel bad yeah every fucking day yeah like so of course that is then like proliferating what's being written and of course that's speaking to people because everyone feels nuts yeah. yes <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and I, I was actually reading an interview that you did earlier and it was in i think it was in the the irish independent and we're talking about how you want your writing to become more demented over time yeah. uh, which I loved because it was just kind of like you were saying about how people have complained mm. you, I think you said you were a slave to Goodreads yeah um, so it was saying that you felt a bit like a slave to Goodreads and how um you know you felt people were kind of finding issue with the whole unhinged characters and unhinged women characters specifically um, and I just loved what you said about being like, no, I want my writing to become more and more demented because it was just like a big like fuck you to to people that were like criticizing that because no, this is amazing. Yeah. Like you know, we've been saying like women are so <laughs> complex and we've not kind of had the opportunity to have those parts yeah. of us represented before. Yeah. Um, and I think you said in that interview about how there's been so many like male authors that have been allowed their time and allowed mm. to represent all these variations of male characters and we've not really had that um so yeah I just really love that you said that <laughs> yeah well I mean you know I feel like if if Philip Roth is allowed to make a whole career out of writing about his prostate <laughs> you know I should be like allowed to make a you know, almost certainly much less successful career out of, you know, writing about, you know, how horses are sexy or how, like, maybe cannibalism is the way forward, yeah. you know? <laughs> like, 
like you know dh lawrence gets a bad rep for being nuts and yeah he was nuts um there's um this book that came out a while ago about um him and his partner called um i think it's called burning man and uh talks about um this uh day he's and i think he and his um partner had this very kind of fraught mutually psychologically kind of abusive tormenting relationship and after kind of a long day of like being at each other's throats the way they resolve this really incredible macaroni cheese they both enjoyed once um (laughs) you know i feel like that's exactly the kind of energy you know you want to you want to you know you want to be bringing to fiction writing um and also like i feel like we're also experiencing a moment where there is kind of maybe an appetite for incredibly like arid prose you know the very kind of dry style of um like relaying quite traumatic or like um kind of unhappiness inducing scenarios and and i get why that's interesting especially like from female authors you know because it is sort of Bucking this idea that that women, um, you know, feel too much, you know, yeah. and to have kind of female narrators um, narrate um, incendiary moments in very flat, kind of objective, um, disassociated prose is interesting mm-hmm. because it does challenge that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I'm like, well, you know, I'm mad. And I would like my prose to reflect that, you know, I want to, you know, write a passage about sitting in the bath and like, you know, you, you drop the cap of your shampoo and you pick it up with your toes and just be like, you can just feel the entire trajectory of like your simian heritage and from like prime. Yeah, because they pick stuff up with their toes yeah. <laughs> and I'm picking something up with my toes and it just really like, makes you feel the presence of the other in all that you do yeah. and I'm just like yeah let's have some fiction that won't sell yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll have fun well I mean we'll buy it yeah so. we'll buy it <laughs> um, now Libby's going to kill me now because I'm going off God bless you. <laughs> uh, Libby's going to kill me because I'm going off track now um, she always does this sorry. every time sorry but just with you saying about the whole being in the bath and picking things up with your toes and, and stuff I did notice and we were speaking about it before it's not entirely off track oh, right. okay. well. um, but with the way that you um, you don't really shy away from any kind of conversation around bodily functions, let's say, um, or like kind of, I don't really want to say disgusting because it's something that- Very natural. It's but, very yeah. natural, but it's something that, you know, might make more prudish people maybe a bit uncomfortable. Um, and I'm just wondering like, how did you kind of find that style and that you had the urge to write about the kind of less- um, the word I'm looking for less perfect less perfect side of us as people mm-hmm. let's say <laughs> <laughs> to put it politely <laughs> well because I think probably something that has fueled everything I've written is kind of an interest in like the relationship between the I or the self and other people you know and the gulf mm-hmm. that occurs between trying to conceive or understand 
understand or empathize with others. And I think how that then kind of turns inward onto the self is that the body is this kind of confluence of like unknowable elements over which we have mm-hmm. like so little control. You know, um, I, you know, menstruate once a month and every time it happens, I'm like, God, I'm put together really badly, you know? Like it seems so counterintuitive that this would be the apogee of like human evolution, you know, that like half the population is losing a significant amount of blood every month. I'm like, is this really important? And like every time that happens, I think about the fact that like I have no grasp or true conception of all the different facets, molecules, alchemical processes that are going into like making me function. You know, I am estranged from myself and I never feel that more so than when my body is doing something mad, like or, you know, taking an especially satisfactory shit. Um, (laughs) And I think there is a relationship between those two things in terms of like, having uh, narrators who are unreliable and also who are carving out um, half-formed narratives for the people around them because they can't truly know or understand them because there is this gulf in perception and comprehension. But it's a gulf that exists even within ourselves and our comprehension of our own actions, our own thoughts, our own processes. Mm. And yeah, I think the body is a really kind of fun and visceral way to you know gesture towards that absolutely and uh, I just want to say I have massive amounts of respect for you for writing it was just one part of it where she's I think it might have been Siobhan in bed with Andrew when she was talking about how her stomach was so bloated because she just needed to fart oh she really needed to fart and I was like like, yeah we've all been there we've all been there That was so perfect. I was like, why has nobody said spoke about this before? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we are we are just like an absolute like maelstrom of like you know um reactions and catalysts and it's frankly unbearable, you know, and it's unbearable to be seen on, on those terms and you know, yeah. it's something I'm really yeah, interested in. Yeah, no, it was... It, We're I, here for it. It made my day. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, my boyfriend thinks I'm going slightly mad because whilst I was reading it, I was just like, he would just hear like a cackle in the other room every like <laughs> few minutes and he'd be like, you all right? I'm like, yeah, still reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what we actually wanted to start with uh, mm. before Olivia kills me. Um, so obviously when um, I go into a bookshop, I am that shallow person that gets very drawn in by a book cover. And um, this isn't about common decency. I mean, both covers are very striking, but Mm -hmm. obviously Tennis Lessons was the first one I was introduced to. And this cover in particular struck me. I think it's so eye-catching. To describe it to our listeners, it's kind of like a pub setting, would you say? Mm. um, It kind of shows a pub setting. There's a couple snogging in the corner there's people drinking beer, it feels very sweaty pub vibes, it feels very like when your feet are sticking to the floor in a in a pub, like yeah. it feels like that. Um, and I was just wondering like, what inspires the des- designs and how much input do you have as a writer mm-hmm. in that cover design process? 
Um, actually, with I mean, with tennis lessons, it was so simple. Um, I got the I got an email through one evening saying, you know, the design team has been reading the manuscript, and this is what they've come up with that they think really kind of captures the essence of the book. And they sent it through, and it was that cover, and I was just immediately completely wow, besotted with it. And I th- I felt it was so right because you know it wasn't just like this slightly like grimy kind of like late in the evening like you know pub scene it was also the fact that all the individuals implicated in that cover their faces were all like turned away from camera or like slightly out of focus or cut off so there was this degree of anonymity that I think um also like really fits tennis lessons in that you know the narrator is unnamed she throughout her life occupies these like different roles and is constantly trying to like force herself into different molds of of the person she would like to be and is always coming up then against the opposition of who she actually is and trying to navigate the complexity of that and I felt the cover you know really spoke to that you also get the kind of like you look at it and you can feel it, you know, that kind of sweaty late, late in the yeah. evening, you know, everyone's yeah. had a bit too much, everything is kind of descending into just like iniquity, you know, like someone's making out with someone, someone is sitting in a corner with no one to talk to. Um, <laughs> and But also everyone is fundamentally unrecognisable. And yeah, that, that felt really right for me um, for tennis lessons. Um, and also like this idea of being like caught in the act and the second person of like in the way that the um, tennis lessons is written in the second person like always feels like quite accusatory and I felt like Mm. the cover captured that too um common decency the cover took a little bit longer to get to um and not in like any kind of laborious way but it was more when the cover was first sent through it was actually, to be honest, it wasn't a world away from what it ended up being. Um, but I think something you come up against as an author is realizing that how you see the kind of nucleus of a book and how your publisher sees it and how your publisher and um, the marketing team understands a readership to see it. It was the first time I'd realized there was potentially like a chasm there between how I understood it and how other people were going to be understanding it and I I had an idea for the cover which was you know frankly terrible (laughs) Um, (laughs) like you know I'm not a designer I need to stop pretending I have an idea of what the cover is nice (laughs) and I'm actually you know I'm grateful to have like been told and no one like I think my my editor's response when I pitched my idea was Susie if I take your idea to a marketing meeting they will laugh me off <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that was very humbling which I think yeah, is probably yeah. quite serious. yeah um but yeah no um yeah then eventually we came up with this like you know this like split uh color like um, to kind of again faceless figures which yeah. was always really important to me you know that this idea of like being um undefined because you know both protagonists in tennis lessons don't fully understand themselves yeah um and you know it's also kind of important to me when I write characters that the perception that a reader gets of them is never like an objective one you know that mm-hmm. you have them 
thinking of themselves in certain terms, but because they're invariably like quite um, problematic or mm. um, dysfunctional thinkers, you're always aware that that's a flawed self-perception. Mm. But then also to have the perception of the dual protagonist that they're set alongside with being equally flawed and seeing them in completely like diametrically opposed terms to how they see themselves. So always having like figures, if I do have figures on book covers, I always want them to be kind of slightly out of focus or like slightly mm. faceless mm. Um, because, yeah, I do want that kind of unknowability implied. Yeah, I'm absolutely obsessed with the cover of Tennis Assassins, but um, I do really love how, like you said, the anonymity. Why can I not say it? anonymity there you go there we go got there in the anonymity of um Mm -hmm. the characters you know they're just amazing yeah I'm obsessed and I'm always so curious about cover designs so that's the first thing you see isn't it um and that often Mm -hmm. I will be shallow enough to pick up a book because I like the cover I'm like oh let's see but let me just tell you it's a nightmare going book shopping with her because she has to look at all of all of the covers (laughs) all of them like hours (laughs) (laughs) appreciate them you know there's I a lot mean, of work that goes into these things <laughs> well yeah I mean I imagine that's hugely gratifying for like a cover designer to yeah. hear you know because <laughs> you don't want like books to just be like reduced to kind of word of mouth or mm-hmm. you know review culture or like social media you know you, like I imagine book designers want to like know that their work does matter and it mm-hmm. is like something that is inviting people to engage with them so you know, you're the best. <laughs> Get it on a t-shirt. Yeah. Get it on a t-shirt. <laughs> um, so moving back to Common Decency, um, we were both really intrigued about like how the novel came about and, and what mm. kind of made you choose that dual narrative perspective that you went for. Um, so we were just kind of intrigued as to what how, how you came up with that. Because the novel... Actually, the novel grew out of a short story that I wrote years ago um, that itself grew out of... Do you know that um, Bruegel painting that's like landscape with Fall of Icarus? And it's like, um, yeah, like this like kind of rural like scene and you've got like arable workers and like the like sea being like sunlit. It's really beautiful. It's a huge ship just kind of sailing on by with fishermen on it. And then in the corner, in like the tiniest corner, you've just got this like little pair of legs poking out of the sea like flailing and it's like Icarus who is clearly just like drowned having like fallen um his wings having melted and I remember like becoming weirdly like fixated upon that painting and thinking about it like you know what would it be like to write a story in which all the drama was happening in like the corner you know this Mm -hmm. idea that your life could be completely falling apart totally unbeknownst to the people around you to like the wider scene that you find yourself in um and so the short story was written from entirely from the perspective of the character who then eventually when I wrote the novel became Lily and it was a very truncated version of Lily's narrative of becoming obsessed with a neighbor and wanting to teach her a lesson and then recognizing at the end of the story that all these things she'd done had actually not had any true impact that Mm. what was actually dismantling the object of her attention's life was something entirely unrelated from anything she Mm. had done um 
and then I thought, well, you know, what if I also wrote the perspective of the person whose life has fallen apart? And and yeah. that was then how I came up with this idea of the the separate narratives. Yeah, because you know, like I wrote them initially as two entirely separate, almost like novellas. You know, I wrote mm-hmm. all of Lily's section, and then I wrote all of Siobhan's section, and then you know, wanted them to kind of line up temporally so like made sure that I had like relevant things happening where one would kind of encroach on the other's life at like the right moments within the novellas but still hadn't really conceived of like interspersing them Mm. um then it was my editor who said oh you know I think potentially you know these two stories will be all the stronger if you can see in real time how they're blending into one another which is when I then did a kind of chapter about um yeah and you know I was just really interested in you know what I was saying earlier this kind of imposing upon other people the kind of narratives that you need to to justify your actions or Mm. to make yourself better um and then for a reader to be able to see all the like misconnections, all the like wrong assumptions that both these characters are making about the people around them and about each other. Um, yeah, and that was kind of just where it came out of. I think as well, there's like a real kind of satisfaction as a reader in getting to see, like I love stories that are told from more than one perspective mm. and I am such a nosy person that... Um, before I lived in this house I lived in a flat that was on a fourth floor that overlooked a pub and whenever it was kicking off on a Friday night I would I would need to look out the window and see what was going on and I would I would, I would just it was just a need it was like it's a visceral. compulsion <laughs> like I would need to look out the window and watch what was going on and and I often do it where um I'll be sat in a cafe somewhere looking out the window and I'll be like making stories up for the people that pass by and stuff. But I think there's a real satisfaction in this that you do kind of get to see what's going on in mm. each of these lives. Mm. And um, I also really liked the inclusion of, without giving too much away, of the inclusion of another character um, towards mm. the end. I liked that being slotted Yeah, in that was amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know why I've, I feel, I, I just feel like I need to know everything about everyone. Um, so mm. I feel like you satisfied, satisfied. <laughs> Your curiosity. I have a curiosity, and my my need for being news. <laughs> I mean, because I'm I'm exactly the same. Um, you know, I was reading this funny. essay um, a few a few months ago by Laurie Murr talking about you know she's talking about you know the kind of early indicators were there that I might eventually become a novelist because I was like obsessed with like components she was like I would like pick elements or components off other things and just collect them like this Mm -hmm. weird kind of like arbiter of this like museum of like bits um (laughs) and she was like and that's that's weird that's pathological and you know but that's exactly what I then brought to my fiction writing which is this kind of congregation of like little details and elements that I see and when I was little and at school, I had this, like, reputation for just openly staring at people. I would just, like, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, you know, it's not surprising I didn't get laid until I was in my 20s. 
productivity and like stable working environment, steady income was very much the prescribed formula. And, you know, we came then into the workforce at a time where we realized that was like toxic and unsustainable and, you know, potentially like entering ourselves into a model entirely fueled by like productivity, like relentless Mm -hmm. drudgery, like propping up the economy rather than following our hopes and dreams you know it felt it felt wrong but then we rub we rub against that you know we represent something that is completely antithetical to everything our parents learned and knew yeah and yeah like you say it comes from a place of love on their part but it is like complete fucking anathema (laughs) to us we're like no you know what what if instead of a steady income what if i was happy (laughs) <laughs> what? Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> if it was ridiculous. Just <laughs> such a thing. And like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like things like that are things that I'm like really, really kind of interested in capturing. You know, like the ways of showing love, the ways of expressing affection and care that actually are so flawed you know that are fueled by like ideas that don't sit well with the person except trying Mm. to accept the love and how love can like curdle so easily when it is being you know driven uh, like by a place or by a perspective that sits at odds with how the recipient thinks um but yeah (laughs) so moving back to um your characters Siobhan and Lily they both mirror each other in a myriad of ways Mm. um and initially that's not so evident because they feel like very different people yeah and then as we explore the narrative a bit more they do start to kind of merge a little bit more and you start to see the similarities in their personalities and their characteristics Mm. um I just wondered how much of that was intentional how much kind of just started to happen as you were writing obviously you've written them separately and then brought them together so I was just wondering how much of that was intentional yeah no I mean I really really wanted to come through that to come through so it's you know it's really gratifying to like hear that it did um because <laughs> so thank you but yeah because you know I think there might be um, an initial assumption when you write um, a dual narrative that they're meant to be sort of diametrically opposed. And probably especially, you know, Mm. given um, I was writing a novel set in Northern Ireland where um, you might expect, you know, if if you're reading a dual narrative, you might expect the characters to come from like binary um positions like um Mm. religiously like socially their place within the community um because that is so often the binary that is like propagated by like mainstream british media about northern Mm. ireland it's that these two communities that are polarities they are Mm. completely like diametrically opposed they sit completely like at odds with one another um and i was never interested in in feeding into that you know I wanted these two characters who have very different backgrounds 
but who are both occupying the same not only like immediate geographic space but also similar emotional spaces in that they're both like trying to circumnavigate different kinds of grief but but grief nonetheless um and what was more important to me was for it to come across that despite you know all the ways in which they could potentially help each other the way they have approached living this very kind of resected style of life where they don't know how to ask for help mm. or or extend the hand to someone else like in a kind of show of like continuity or community like how that has rendered them more lonely yeah. and more isolated um and I wanted that kind of to almost be like the saddest aspect of the book you know the fact that here are two people who are so similar who could potentially really like rescue each other from their respective sadness and yeah. they're completely failing to because they don't know properly how to communicate or how to look beyond their like deep kind of self-directed introspection yeah. and like try and feel for another person i'm gonna throw a spanner in the works um which one of those um or did you maybe have favorites oh <gasps> you're not gonna ask that sophie's <laughs> choice I am. Um, <gasps> did you prefer writing one of them to the other? I'm just gonna ask it. <laughs> it's difficult, you know, because I think probably I real I I mean I really feel for Lily because mm. Lily is so strange mm. and like has been kind of denied the the most kind of substantiating emotionally giving relationship that she had in her life you know like this this relationship she had with her mother like justified her like it reified her it made her real it like enabled her to interact with the world and she's been now deprived of that through no fault of her own um at the same time she is incredibly self-indulgent. Yeah. Um, but, you know, whereas Siobhan, Siobhan, like, I related to in a big way for all her kind of more toxic impulses, her, mm. like, intense self-destruction. Mm. Like, I related to all of that so much. I mean, there was so much of me in Siobhan just mm. in terms of how she, like, doesn't help herself, mm. you know? like wallows detonates like her potential for happiness for freedom at every turn but yeah. at the same time is incredibly lost and and has developed her kind of sense of self from other people in the same way that lily has but in a more kind of toxic like heteronormative like relationship model mm-hmm. ah so who's my favorite i mean <laughs> i think siobhan would win in a fight um <laughs> oh no way you see i'm in lily's corner oh yeah yeah i'd <laughs> fight to the death <laughs> yeah lily would, probably, lily would fight weirder you know like, <laughs> i feel like i relate to her too much <laughs> was, was lily like a horse girl in school? like there was always somebody <laughs> running around the playground I, I, obsessed I, with horses I, <laughs> I think probably to be honest, Lily's my favorite. I think I like, yeah, like <laughs> I, I mean, even like, like, yeah. I, you know, I just said I relate so much to Siobhan, but you know, I relate so much to Lily too. Um, yeah, no, I, I think Lily. I think Lily's my favorite. <laughs> but I, I really like as well, though, that like you were saying, 
their toxic impulses and how you end up really questioning your own morals with characters like this because mm. you're rooting for them when you know what they're doing is totally wrong but you're like mm. yeah but I want her to go inside yeah. Siobhan's flat I want yeah. to see <laughs> I want to see what's going on yeah and, it, and part of you is like well that's wrong but at the same time I end up rooting for these people um yeah and yeah I think it's like what we were saying before about this whole you know new kind of wave of of unlikable or chaotic female characters I, I think mm they kind of slot into that don't they it's all the capacities of us as people um and yeah I just I I just I don't know I don't know if I hate myself or loved the fact that I was rooting for them I think yeah (laughs) you've made me confused Susanna (laughs) we're bad people (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's my entire writing process (laughs) I'm just gonna yeah just gonna pour all my worst impulses onto the page you yeah. know um yeah and you know you come away from it thinking oh god <laughs> is this who I am yeah but at least it's on the page <laughs> and you're not actually doing it you know <laughs> uh this is me wanting to talk about another quote isn't it yeah probably yeah You've got about okay. a million so this okay this was our favorite quote no it's, it's actually funny because out of the entire book we both Tab the same bit the so exact same I was quote. like yeah this it means and something. I was reading it out to her on FaceTime and she just was <laughs> while I was reading it out and not looking at it she was literally showing me the page I was like yeah like, <laughs> I've already got it highlighted as, as well I've got it um so we were just obsessed with this um time was what solved things rather than apologies or explanations a show of affection from the wronged party a head on a shoulder or a metronomic nudge with hips at the kitchen counter a show of contrition from the guilty, a cup, a cup of tea, or the laundry brought in from the line. This was all that was required to restore peace. Um, this is Lily, isn't it, with Lily's mom? Mm-hmm. It is Lily. Mm-hmm. I don't want to assume. It is. It is Lily with her mom. Now, we both thought, like, that quote is so magical. Like, that perfectly illustrates the mother-daughter dynamic. I like... just don't know how, how your brain did it. <laughs> I don't know how your brain did it, because it's just so... <laughs> accurate and so like I think it reflects so many relationships that daughters have with mothers 100% and and I've spoken about this before like Mm -hmm. how I'm really fascinated by the mother-daughter relationship and I think it's something that's so kind of nuanced and complex and um it can there's so many kind of difficult elements to a mother-daughter relationship and and just that that whole section I was like that is me and my mom like if we fall out like we won't Mm -hmm. speak about it we'll just have had an argument and then we'll just do something nice for the other person like (laughs) no need to talk (laughs) no need to discuss what just happened we'll just ignore that and skim over it and uh, yeah (laughs) I just what drew you to wanting to write about the mother-daughter relationship yeah how did you capture that so well well, because, I mean, I think what we were just talking about um, now in terms of, you know, that passage with Siobhan and her mum, you know, is you see, a spe- you know, in a way that's maybe more pronounced or intense than in lots of relationships, the failures of communication and language between a mother and daughter. Mm. Because um, how a mother will understand compassion will understand understanding will be you know entirely fueled by the circumstances in which she grew up what Mm -hmm. she has like 
has passed on to her by her own mother-daughter relationship and to be a young woman is to you know be entered into like an immediate complex like farrago of like disparate influences you know it's a absolute shitstorm mm. to try and be a young woman yeah, yeah. and uh, and that really breeds kind of these moments of of misunderstanding mm. or being at like um you know united in obviously a goal which is to get on to express love to experience empathy and show compassion but our, our language for doing that so often comes up short yeah. or our way of doing that so often like is constrained or restricted by the love we have been shown in our past or the understanding we've been shown in our past and that drives our means of verbal communication Mm -hmm. and I think so often with a mother-daughter relationship when language feels how compassion love is shown then is through action is through silence is is through gesture um because that can't be misinterpreted that that it's so much harder to then try and read into that um hostility or attempts at control or attempts at like um subversion or deviation or like um aggression you know like a kind gesture is so often i think what can like calm the waters of like that disconnect between the two women of like completely um separate and different like age groups and moments and um and and so much of common decency is about failures of language is about inability to communicate verbally about like how language like does us wrong occasionally or like leads us astray and yeah i you know that was like a moment where i want to be like you know here's this relationship Mm -hmm. that repairs itself not through language or through a different way of using language yeah I love that mm. um and I think I think for me as well a, a huge part of the book was grief and about grief and everyone at home is going to go oh here she goes again with the grief <laughs> um and for those of you that don't know that are listening I did lose my mom last year and so I'm fascinated by the subject of it. I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by, by grief and how different people handle grief. Um, and there, there is a quote, I've got a quote, oh, don't worry, I'm prepared. Um, and there is a quote um, that I thought perfectly encapsulated grief for me. Um, and it's, it's uh, from Lily's perspective. Lily didn't need to build a life beyond the shadows of her mother's expectations and was so happy to reside in them. Now that she's gone, Lily has no ballast for her own sense of self and her recourse is to to an anger that she doesn't fully understand. And I thought that that was just so well put because you know what it does, it kind of leaves you adrift and you do kind of, it makes you angry that, you know, that person that I used to talk to is not there and I felt like like Lily's character was a a perfect embodiment of that kind of that struggle with that a lot of people go through um so obviously it plays a very pivotal role in in the narrative um and I love the bits about keeping her postcards in in the front of books and yeah you know it was just such a beautiful um demonstration of her love for her mother Mm. um and her mother's love for her um, so I was just wondering how how important was it for you to get grief right and to to have grief um, kind of w- woven throughout the narrative? 
yeah i mean i mean for starters i mean i'm really really kind of um sorry to hear that about you know your experience that's shit yeah um, it is shit <laughs> it is <laughs> just completely shit it is um, and the thing is people pussyfoot around yeah. pussyfoot around it but it is it's shit and it's horrible but you know that's yeah. what it is because <laughs> yeah. yeah like you know i mean it was so important to me to to write that properly you know to like not undercut it to not like frame it as something to be you know got over or Mm. like not something to like not just a period that you have to you know forcibly struggle your way through to then come out the other side of um like I've been reading a huge amount of stuff um at the minute about kind of mourning and grieving and like Derrida talks about this like thing in writing called introjection which is where you write imagined conversations with the deceased you know you try and like reignite them through chats which obviously is what Lily does throughout that book um but you know it, it doesn't it doesn't really work because you are ultimately coming up against the wall of your own understanding you can't reanimate them can't bring back their voice because they're gone and you know interjection might seem like a temporary brief salve in the moment that it's happening but it's it's not them Mm -hmm. and they're yeah and it's not simple and it's not a kind of color by numbers here's how you come out the other side of it you know I really wanted to kind of capture that that stagnancy which yeah. is almost like a voluntary recourse for her because she doesn't want to come out the other end of it she doesn't no. want to be fixed what she wants is her mom yeah and yeah and you know and so I didn't I didn't really want her even to have a kind of redemptive character mm-hmm. arc where like mm-hmm. she starts off broken and winds up fixed because there is no really being fixed. The the you of her narrative is gone and she is forever changed by that, you know. Yeah. Um there are obviously other mannerisms and like recourses that she could like work on. Um yeah. you know she, yeah, I don't know if you've read it, she's a bit weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that that grief wasn't something I wanted the book to fix because yeah. I don't I don't think grief is something to be fixed. No, mm-hmm. it's not. It definitely isn't. And I just I applaud you because it was it's one of the um I've read a lot of novels recently that have grief um as a as a a pivotal part of it, and this was by far one of the best and most deftly put um, uh, novels on the subject. I, I truly, truly think you got it really right, really right. And it's so hard to do. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I think we were talking earlier about how it was a very specific type of grief because yeah. it was knowing that she was going to lose her mom, And I think that's almost like prolonged grief in a sense mm-hmm. would you say mm-hmm. um like what was that like yeah like having to write mm. you know grief off yeah knowing that she was going to eventually pass yeah. I hate the word pass that's not right. <laughs> yeah because it was something I almost like discovered through the act of writing it you know like obviously her mother is this you know kind of titan within her life um but who is also like a very mm-hmm. compassionate person who has devoted her life to kind of 
making sure you know lily lily feels comfortable lily feels secure lily feels like held and you know even after the diagnosis you know i wanted to write her mother continuing to do that because of course that yeah. was, that is the way her mother would be in that scenario but it wasn't almost even till i was writing the closing scenes of the book you know there's a bit in the sort of very um final paragraph i think of lily's section where she reflects on the fact that so much of her mother's final months were once again devoted to making sure lily was okay yeah rather than you know indulging or like engaging with her own fear mm. and i mean and i don't think even i had really realized that that w- it was what i had written until yeah. I got to that, like right rounding off of her narrative, and you know, like like it really like hit me, you know, yeah, like like shit, yeah. I mean, because that is what good mothers do, you know, they yeah. completely subjugate their own fears, their own concerns to prioritize and do their best to like rectify those of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah yeah like I don't think I'd realized until I was finishing it just how kind of intense it had been to write it and yeah. yeah yeah it was yeah <laughs> <laughs> so obviously it's it is a massive balancing act with mm. when you're writing about a dog topic like grief um to find more kind of light co- moments of comic relief um and I think we had a couple of favourite parts. That oh, my goodness. Le- oh. Lydia cannot get over. I can't get over it. Now, guys, I'm not, I'm not, I, I will kind of probably ruin it for you. But the punchline of one of the jokes is Hemoglobin. <laughs> Hemoglobin, right? I died inside. Stop talking about it. It's hysterical. <laughs> I've told that joke to everyone I know because it's too funny. And that is, honestly, I was like, this is like genius. So one minute I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, this is reminding me of my mom and it's all these emotions. Next week, you know, I'm hysterically laughing on the floor because the punchline to a joke is hemoglobin. Um, but yes, no, it's my favourite bit. <laughs> I, one of my favourite bits was when um, Siobhan's in the pub and this man is talking to her and Mark mm-hmm. and he's just annoying her so much and she imagines... Uh, throwing a plugged in toaster on him in the back <laughs> and I love it so much <laughs> because we've all been there like yeah. go away why are you talking to me and you do imagine these really dark things and go whoa did my mind just go there <laughs> so I was wondering like was it important for you to write humor in a novel that kind of so vividly explores grief and it's not I just as well it gets quite I think, dark I think, I think you two might be my entire demographic <laughs> we are <laughs> like you have two Susie, Susie you have two readers <laughs> who like you definitely sounds <laughs> don't worry <laughs> um yeah well because I mean I think I think it would be um you know almost like or like unrealistic mm-hmm. to not um like attempt to like invoke humor even within a novel that is like so much about kind of sadness or, or mm-hmm. grief or like desperation you know because that would be to deny what is a very kind of um ubiquitous like 
ever present like facet of the human experience which is yeah. like farce and and humor and and i mean you know even the, the best novels the saddest novels i think you know if they're good if they're like worth their weight and shit you know they they have humor in them because yeah, yeah. it's it's such a natural recourse for people in in the face of like desolation and despair is is yeah. to is to resort to humor um yeah. and yeah like i mean yeah I, I i don't think it would be a novel that's properly kind of captured even the most um like abjectly sad moments of of a life if it didn't also you know capture the humor that you resort to or draw upon in order yeah. to make life better yeah, we would agree oh yeah i'm the queen i'm the queen of <laughs> i'm just the queen of uh making a joke in inappropriate circumstances yeah. Yeah. always always lighten the mood um, <laughs> so um another common theme that uh, we both identified in your work is um extramarital affairs mm. um and we were just kind of wondering like what draws you to that can we just say though we we love an affair trope. we love it it's, I, yeah. it's you just look at the drama <laughs> it, the spank it pulls us in Does. love it <laughs> confession yeah time. oh my god i mean you too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's such an interesting kind of dynamic to write, and I, I mean, it's it's a it's a concept that like really really interests me because I think you know an extramarital affair can be so deceptive as mm. as an idea because I think invariably how it goes is the figure within the relationship who is the married one mm. is very aware that they need to massively overcompensate for the unsustainability of the extramarital relationship by being incredibly like demonstrably affectionate and yeah. like demonstrably like attentive you know in like small ways to to you know convince the third party that that this is real this is a genuine emotional connection that can be sustained over a long period because you know otherwise it would be all too glaringly obvious that this isn't something that can provide you with emotional sustenance um but that you know makes it all the more complex you know when the third party has to step that against the practical terms you know all the ways in which that dynamic is feeling then you know you're coming up against big ethical questions about yeah. your participation in a complicated like triumph like romantic triumvirate but you're also having to like navigate the like because I do also think you know you can become incredibly dependent then on that mm -hmm. dynamic because yeah. it becomes simultaneously this like um liminal like nowhere space where you're not in a relationship but it is also providing you with so much um like of your of your sense of self you know it is yeah. it's holding you up it's making you feel wanted it's making you feel valued yeah. and having to take the gamble of giving that up and being alone and trying to find something that will sustain you is a big 
frightening kind of brave decision to yeah. make um and I think what's so fascinating about writing that is you can really really like present those like in stark terms you know mm-hmm. here's all the ways in which this is fulfilling you while you're also aware of all the ways in which you remain entirely emotionally and romantically unfulfilled mm-hmm. and it and it holds you in like a vice between those two places mm-hmm. and it like leads like to I thought writing it like really kind of rich kind of like psychological like interrogations yeah. you know the drama the sadness of it the like the loneliness of it yeah. but also being faced with the loneliness that will come if you choose to reject it you know I have um one question that I wanted to ask about the novel mm-hmm. um which was um so you wrote this during the pandemic obviously technology feels like it plays quite a big role in the novel as well it almost feels like another character specifically for Siobhan and yeah. um, you know there's and I'm going to be really careful about the way that I speak about this because I don't want to give any spoilers because this was a big thing for mm-hmm. me when I was reading it. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a crucial moment in the novel and uh, Siobhan's phone is constantly vibrating and it feels like this kind of building sort of pressure cooker. Yeah. And it feels like that is almost the thing that pushes her to do what she does. Yeah. And I was just kind of wondering whether you're writing the novel during the pandemic Mm. whether that influenced or impacted the way that you wrote about technology yeah and its presence I guess yeah I think it absolutely did you know I think it fundamentally changed and shaped the course that the novel took um because you know like as I say in the acknowledgments I was living alone for most of Mm. lockdown um and all of my interactions all of my exchanges were you know coming through my phone you know it was my entire like means of communication of like intimacy of Mm -hmm. of anything you know um and I think you know that then sat very comfortably within this like narrative of the extramarital affair um because you know when you're writing a character with with low self-esteem this is another thing about like an extramarital affair if you have a character that already has low self-esteem who has learned to garner their value from romantic entanglements an extra marital affairs cabinet for that you know because yeah. it, is, it is something that has to provide like you know because you don't think of yourself as, as deserving better and also the mm-hmm. dynamic is giving you everything you need to feel real um but as a you know as a relationship that then becomes so reliant on social media to sustain itself when it's you know it's also like a long distance extramarital affair mm. um you know how I was functioning and communicating within those months definitely like fed into how I wrote it you know that reliance upon like the notification you know like that someone yeah. wants to talk to you that someone cares that you're still there you know like it's it was definitely definitely shaped by how I was living in those months you know it was just me and a tank full of fish that I kept killing you know like... oh no <laughs> that's so easy to kill though so easy it's like to kill themselves <laughs> right because right. right. my brother my brother worked um at the time he worked in like a lab where he was responsible because he's um an invasive ecologist and was like doing all these experiments with these fish 
And when his lab got closed for lockdown, he was like, yeah, I have all these fish I have to rehome. Do you want some? And I was like, sure. And he was like, yeah, that's good. He was like, they're so easy to look after. They were not. Everyone's no, killed them. Lies. Like, like, light killed them. Noise killed them. Jesus <laughs> killed them. Like, Just don't I, look at them. Don't no, acknowledge they no. exist. <laughs> like, it's so depressing waking up in the morning and just having to scoop corpses out of the tank. <laughs> and this oh, is like, gosh. please, someone text me. <laughs> oh, oh, no. no. Like the recriminating eyes of the remaining fish being like, <laughs> You're killing us. No. God, that's yeah. all you needed on top of the panic day, isn't it? I know. Imagine <laughs> pandemic and then everyone, oh, all your fish are dead. Yeah. So <laughs> um, so um, I just wanted to ask finally um, there's, a, there's very much a, um, an emphasis on the interconnectedness of of the story and the narrative and the events that unfold. Mm. Um, I particularly loved trying to figure out like who was who and mm. like, oh, that's the woman she's spoken to. And, oh, I know that bracelet. And um, I love those little um, clues as to who everyone was in each other's narrative. Mm. Um, how much of that did you like plan out or was it kind of, did you sit and plot that out or we mm. did it come more naturally? Like, oh, this is the part where I can have Sophie appear or yeah it was it was a combination of both um I mean I think part of what really fueled my trying to do that was the fact it was set in Belfast which like Mm -hmm. despite being a city is so like nucleic in some respects you know there is very much a small respected place of this like bit in the like South Belfast where everyone has to live where you are constantly bumping into the same people like all your (laughs) social circles are somehow tangentially intertwined um yeah and you know I really you know wanted to cap that almost as you know how strange it is to have all these interweaving characters mm-hmm. all these like six degrees of separation in the midst of this novel that is primarily about how we don't know people but there are yeah. all these side characters connecting us there are all these interactions that you know all these ways in which our lives are inadvertently rubbing up against one another regularly and I think Belfast as a city really encapsulates that um and yeah and I don't think I realized when I started writing it how important that was going to be to me um but it happened a few times I was like oh you know I want these two characters to not just um have interactions that are explicit I want them to have worlds that um collide without their knowing and little by little, like these side characters grew out of that. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, like here, it felt so organic eventually, you know, to have mm-hmm. these characters like weaving into different people's narratives. And I also, you know, I wanted these characters to then only be made real, only be fleshed out by the act of reading both narratives, you know, like, yeah. because, you know, I wanted that to feed into this idea that we don't truly know anyone that people have nuances and like sides yeah. and those complexities that we as an ind- not we as an individual it makes no sense me as <laughs> yeah we as the mass conglomerate that is humanity <laughs> but yeah i love that i love that so i love to well i will ask every author Everyone. i will speak to whether they have a favorite author of their own or whether um you have like specific 
um books that have inspired your work or that inspire you as a writer yeah um I I mean uh Zeri Smith um is someone I've loved since you know since I was a teenager I think NW by her really fueled why I wrote tennis lessons um I think probably in terms of common decency how to be both by Ali Smith I'm mean, not just naming mm. authors whose surname is Smith um I actually <laughs> authors whose surname is Smith sure. only Smith <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> How to Be Both um, by Ali Smith was um, a big influence. Um, Rachel Kosk and Laurie Murr, who I mentioned earlier, are also people I love. Um, and, you know, like Japanese and Korean writers, um, I, you know, keep um, re- like, you know, gravitating back to like um, Mieko Kawakami and Sayoko Murata, um, I think are both absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah. I love that. Okay, I'm just adding to my TBR. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. NW sat on my shelf and I haven't read it yet. And it was like staring at me. Every time it popped up in your book, I was like, oh, I need to get to it. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like it was like silently judging me. It probably is. Probably is, yeah. (laughs) Um, So we have kept you long enough, but we also uh, always like to end on asking if there's any cultural recommendations you've got for us or the listeners. Is there anything you've been enjoying recently? We'd love to know. Um, On Netflix, there's... uh... Scandinavian show called Love and Anarchy um, which the second Ooh. season has just come out which I haven't watched yet but it's at the first season is insane it's amazing it's about this um, woman who is brought into a publishing company to kind of reinvigorate their business model and you know she's married with kids and she enters into this strange dynamic with the much younger male um, IT guy at the business this like complex system of mind games of like dares and stuff and it's all so horny and it's just brilliant i'm already sold yeah like <laughs> i'm gonna go on get on stairs after this and on. I that in my life amazing is there anything else um as of today britney spears has just released her first new music since her conservatorship ended Oh my gosh! Are yes. you joking? Yes. Oh she's, my goodness! She's done a single with Elton John. Obsessed. And it is an absolute Love that. Oh, Love well, that. that has made my day. As if this wasn't good enough, you know, I've got Britney. <laughs> That's all sorted for tonight. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much. We've loved chatting to you. Um, thank you so much for coming on. And, yeah, listeners, if there's anybody you would like us to speak to in the future, um, please do DM us at Pair of Bookends Pod on Instagram. We really hoped you hoped we really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Susanna Uh, please do rate review and subscribe as it helps to boost us in the charts and uh, stay tuned for uh, what our next book club pick is going to be I'm excited yeah me too and Susanna thank you so much for coming on to a pair of bookends thank you for having me (laughs) we didn't have you (laughs) 